Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is David Loy. David is a professor of Buddhist and comparative philosophy and a teacher in the Sanbo. Actually, do I, am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, San, Sanbo. 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 Sanbo Zen. Okay, I'm going to do that again. Sure. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is David Loy. David is a professor of Buddhist and comparative philosophy and a teacher in the Sanbo Zen tradition of Japanese Buddhism. His books include Non-Duality, A Study in Comparative Philosophy, Lack and Transcendence, The Problem of Death and Life in Psychotherapy, Existentialism and Buddhism, and Eco-Dharma, Buddhist Teachings for the Ecological Crisis, which is forthcoming uh, this next year in 2019. He is especially concerned about social and ecological issues. In addition to offering academic lectures, workshops, and meditation retreats, he is one of the founders of the new Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center near Boulder, Colorado. In June 2014, David received an honorary degree from Carleton College, his alma mater, during its 2014 commencement. In April 2016, David returned his honorary degree to protest, to protest the decision of the Board of Trustees not to divest from fossil fuel investments. So hello, David. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for this invitation. Very happy to be with you. Absolutely. Um, so I've, I'm actually very honored to interview you. I was telling you before we started recording that, um, you know, you, I'm a big fan of your work and have been following it for some time. Um, you know, from the, my first reading of Non-Duality, which was certainly a game changer and, and very clarifying of, of, you know, a concept that I feel like is often thrown around with a lot of um, uh, confusion. So I'm looking forward to talking, you know, clearly about that concept today. <laughs> as clearly um, as it can be talked as about. As clearly as it can be talked about, you know, something that transcends words. Um, but before we get into that, you know, the end of your bio ends in a, a kind of, you know, radical statement about something that you, um, uh, the returning of your honorary degree. So because that, um, you know, form of activism really uh, reflects, I think, some of your current commitments. I would love to kind of start with that. So can you tell us a little about, you know, what happened there and how do you return an honorary degree? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. Um, well, to my surprise, uh, you know, Carlton about three years ago sent me this letter just offering me this uh, honorary degree and asking me to speak at the commencement ceremony in, in June 2016, as you said, uh, and, and that was a lot of fun, actually, but also I've been part of a group of students, alumni, faculty, and staff that have been pushing the Board of Trustees of Carleton to divest from fossil fuel investments. You know, mm -hmm. Carleton, like many colleges, has, has a fairly large endowment, and not a very large amount, but, but nonetheless, a significant amount is, is invested in in a couple fossil fuel corporations. Curiously, two of the ones that are very active here in Colorado mm. and which have a very bad reputation. So I've been part of that group trying to dialogue with the board of trustees and they haven't been very responsive. So one idea was to publicly return the degree and see if that would contribute to the pressure. And we're yeah. still doing it so far. The board is sort of holding fast on that issue. But I mean, it seems a really important one to me not in terms of the amount of money that's actually invested, but symbolically, you know, should, should a college be profiting from 
fossil fuel companies that for the most part are doing the best they can to resist the kind of shift into renewable sources of energy that, that we'd so desperately need today. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a very admirable, you know, form of activism there. And it um, aligns, I think, quite nicely with, you know, the principle of eco-dharma that you are talking about in your next book. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about eco-dharma and, and how kind of Buddhist teachings um, uh, can give us insight into ecolo the ecological crisis? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a really good question because needless to say, at, at the time that Buddhism first originated, about, what, 2,400 years ago in Iron Age India, th there wasn't an ecological crisis. I mean, they had their own political problems and such. But, uh, and likewise, as Buddhism spread throughout Asia, that really wasn't something that it ever sort of confronted. So we yeah. can't go back to the original texts and sort of read off any specific answers. Uh, however, you, you can extrapolate certain things from Buddhist teachings. Uh, for example, I see important parallels between what Buddhism traditionally has to say about our individual predicament, our, our sense of separation. I mean, one way to understand the fundamental problem is this sense of duality mm -hmm. uh, that, that we feel there's a sense of self inside that's quite separate from the rest of the world outside. And Buddhism, I think, addresses that traditionally on on the individual or personal level. But I think now we have a comparable sort of species-wide issue. I mean, I think it's the same sense of separation between our species as a whole or contemporary civilization, if you will, and the rest of the biosphere. So one thing one can see if you sort of spend some time looking at it is there do seem to be some fascinating parallels in that. The other, the other thing that I think is important in terms of the Buddhist response is that we have this idea of the bodhisattva path um, yeah. so that Buddhism isn't simply about, you know, your own peace of mind or your own awakening, right. but that as we begin to see through this delusion of separation, we uh, have a stronger sense of responsibility and compassion wanting to help other people as well. And so I think in that sense, uh, given the particular problem we have today, I think the bodhisattva path needs to expand to to understand to what to respond to that kind of situation as well right how do buddhist teachings offer us something different in you know so obviously we have a lot of ecologically minded people operating from within a kind of you know embedded in a western response whatever that means right. so what does buddhist what what does buddhism lend us in terms of um, this crisis that might be, you know, helpful where other principles, you know, from a kind of Western context would not be so helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder if the most important thing that Buddhism has to offer is this concept of the Bodhisattva path, because the Bodhisattva has a double path, or maybe we should say a two-sided path in that they continue to be concerned about their own contemplative practice, their own personal spiritual development. At yeah. the same time, they know that that's insufficient and that it's not enough just to kind of rest or, or dwell in your own equanimity or your own emptiness, as, as Buddhism talks about, but that it's important to go out there and be engaged in the world. And, and I think when you look at the, the enormous challenges that we face today and, and how difficult it is to avoid being burned out 
you know, I mean, so often activism is frustrated in one way or the other. Uh, I think it's really important when possible to sort of ground that into some kind of contemplative practice that gives us some, what, what can I say, some, some sense of spaciousness about the process. And in particular, right. one of the really important things that the Bodhisattva path emphasizes is acting without attachment to the results of action. Right. It's easy to misunderstand. I think a lot of people would maybe misunderstand that as sort of taking away from the urgency of what we do. And, and I don't think that's what's pointed to. Rather, what it means is something like um, it's our task to do the very best we can, not knowing if anything we do makes any difference whatsoever. Yeah, uh, and the ability to do that, I think, is is very difficult unless one is grounded in some kind of spiritual practice. Mm, mm. So your life has been, you know, a pretty beautiful illustration of the in, intersection of scholarship and practice. And so I'm just curious because um, personally, I, I I like to hear academics who are also practitioners talk about this, you know, sometimes struggle. So has it been a struggle for you ever um, reconciling the demands of scholarship with the life of a practi practitioner? Hmm. Uh, not so much, I think, although I kind of evolved into it in a rather unusual way. I mean, after I graduated from Carleton back in 69, mm. I basically dropped out. I didn't have any interest in graduate school. Okay. I went out to San Francisco and I was part of the draft resistance movement there. I, see. I expected to spend a couple of years in prison, but just before I would have been drafted, uh, they came in with a lottery system and my number was, was uh, too low. So <laughs> actually, and then I realized that I sort of needed to work on myself. So I kind of dropped out and I started around the world trip. And the first stop was Hawaii and I got stuck there because I didn't have any money. So I ended up in Hawaii <laughs> for five years. Uh, and, and that was kind of a romantic adventure, li living in a remote valley, mm -hmm. you know, didn't have two dimes to rub together, but, uh, you know, living mostly off the land there. And then from there, I eventually got involved in Zen practice. Mm. Um, and it was Robert Aiken, a, a Zen teacher, um, who eventually suggested that I might like to go back to graduate school. Um, I think he thought I might be a translator. He didn't know how bad I was at languages. So I immediately zoomed back into Asian philosophy and comparative philosophy because I was trying to understand the kind of changes or things that I'd been experiencing in my practice. And, mm. and sort of one thing led to another. Yeah. Later on, I eventually ended up in Singapore visiting my parents and ended up getting a job there and teaching in the philosophy department there just with a master's degree from Hawaii. Oh, wow. But... Uh, at that time, I, I wanted to write, I knew I wanted to write a book on non-duality. And um, I'd already written several essays or papers on it. And the University of Singapore is a British system. So basically what they need is just a really big, thick book, something like the non-duality book. And that's basically what happened. Mm -hmm. So that, that ended up in a, in a very kind of unexpected way, opening the doors for some um, um, academic positions. Uh, but because I started from the practice standpoint and I really wasn't connected with any particular movement or graduate school in the West, uh, I, I've sort of basically gone my own way from the beginning. 
Right. And you also were at a school, University of Hawaii, that is very, um, it's a very f famous school for comparative philosophy between the East and West. So it's sort of like a, a happy place for you to do that kind of work, right? Well, I don't know that I would have done it anywhere else. It's just right. so happened that that was the place I could go. And because I was living there, I sort of qualified for in-state tuition, which is the only reason I could afford to go to. Oh, nice. Score. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, one thing I love about the book is that, um, you know, a lot of, I feel like I see a lot of comparative philosophy between East and West that's really trying to it's sort of reading the East in the terms of the West. So it's like trying to see what the Eastern traditions have to say about, you know, our epistemological problems, right? That, that really are problems of the Western tradition. Where what I love about non-duality is that it seems like it's doing the opposite. It's sort of reading the Western tradition from um, the commitments of the Eastern contemplative experience, um, which felt, you know, very refreshing for me reading it, you know, especially since I studied Western philosophy myself. So, you know, there's so much, just to get into this topic of non-duality, it's become a very hip, you know, concept, a very hip idea. And I feel like a lot of the times, you know, it's sort of just thrown around willy-nilly with kind of confused connotation. People talking about, you know, living, you know, oh, I'm, I'm just living non-dually or this, I, I'm a part of this non-dual community. And it's, so it's almost like where someone's identifying with their non-dual experience, which it seems like if a non-duality is a mode of identification, then they've missed the point. <laughs> so what have you encountered in, um, what have you encountered as sort of misunderstandings in your own, you know, teaching of this notion of non-duality? Well, the first thing to say is that the concept is inherently ambiguous, right? Right. Non-duality, non-duality, literally meaning not two, but when, whenever you hear the concept, you have to ask, well, what is the two that's being denied? And yeah. there's many different dualities that that can be looked at in a non-dual way. Uh, so for example, the non-duality the non of bipolar concepts like big, small, uh, good versus evil. Um, in Buddhism, there's particular non-dualities such as samsara nirvana. If you read the Buddhist, uh, the, the Mahayana philosopher Nagarjuna, he's denying the kind of separation that seems to be built into Theravada or early Buddhism where, you know, this world is the world of suffering and Nirvana is, as it were, some other dimension or realm and we're trying to transcend or escape this world in order to go there. And so Nagarjuna makes it very clear from the beginning that uh, what we're talking about is, is really different ways of experiencing this world here and now. Mm -hmm. um, and also it just keeping to Buddhism for the moment, the duality of practice and enlightenment that you find very strongly in, in Dogen. But I suppose the one that's of most interest to me and the one that takes up most of the attention in the non-duality book is the non-duality of self and other or subject and object, right? Mm. So emphasizing the non-duality is denying that the sense of separation that, that we normally feel, that there's a me inside and the rest of the world is outside me. That, I mean, in contemporary terms, what that's basically implying, uh, what we could say is that the sense of self is a psychological and social construct, the sense of separation. And uh, a spiritual path like Buddhism, for example, shows us how that might be deconstructed and uh, reconstructed. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, in the book, um, towards the beginning, you unpack five different dualities, which I thought, you know, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, so it's so clarifying to see it sort of um, drawn out in this way. And you're talking a little bit about it already. You're distinguishing between different kinds of non-duality. But I would love for the listeners just to kind of go point by point between these um, five of them, that at least the five that I noticed. <laughs> Maybe I, I missed some. <laughs> oh, I am, I will, promise. So the five, the five types of non-duality, yes, this was your dissertation, was it? Originally, that's right. Yes, yeah. so it's been a while, everybody. Um, <laughs> but the, the first one is the negation of dualistic thinking. Right. Um, so, so I guess we'll just go point by point, and if you could just kind of give us a brief sort of summary yeah. of each one. Sure. Well, this is, this is a pretty straightforward one. I mean, for example, big, small. Seems like we have two different concepts there, but if you think about it, uh, actually, they're, they're very much interdependent in the sense that if you don't understand the concept of little, you don't understand the concept of big, right? Yeah. It's really like they're two sides of the same coin, the same, the same concept, um, it, which means that you can't have one without the other. Because each is the negation of the other, right? So what is big? Well, it means it's not little. What's little? It means it's, it's not big. And the important point here is that this is not just a logical point, but it can be very psychologically important as well. For example, yeah. if, if the most important thing for you is to live a pure life, what that implies is you're going to be preoccupied with impurity. You know, I mean, however you understand pure and pure, they are a, a dualistic pair. Purity means not impure and, you know, vice versa. So to live a pure life, it means that you would end up being preoccupied with distinct, distinguishing situations and choices. You, you have to pick one or the other. You, you can't have one. You can't have the concept pure without the concept impure. Right. And, and, you know, this may be why one of the great uh, Chan masters, Hui Hai, uh, made the point that true purity is to live beyond the duality of purity and impurity. Mm, mm, and uh, maybe even a better example, or maybe the best example, if you would, is good versus evil, right. and how and how easily we get caught up in that. You know, once uh, we could say that, um, in order to feel good about ourselves, we have to find something that's evil, and if we want to feel really good we like to be fighting against that evil. And I think this points to one of the sort of tragic paradoxes of a lot of history, that one of the main causes or sources of evil in the world has been our attempts to destroy evil. Yeah, yeah. If you think about heresy and witchcraft trials and even somebody like Hitler or, you know, he's trying to purify the earth, as it were, by, by getting rid of the polluting or the evil elements and, and how and how often we tend to fall into that. I think the war on terror is another classic example of that. Um, yes. What was the difference between George W. Bush and Osama bin Laden? I think they were both fighting this holy war of good against evil. Of course, they reversed the valency, what the one thought was good, the other thought was evil. But nonetheless, once you've identified something as evil, uh, you know, your job is to destroy it, not to understand it, not to negotiate with it. And it's pretty problematical one, I think. So my follow-up question to that then, because I th think this, uh, this often leads to a kind of 
interesting question, which is, you know, if we are to transcend that good, because of course everyone is probably resonating with what you're saying in terms of, you know, these ways in which good and evil as a morality gets deployed in, in, you know, in terrible campaigns, but how do we, does acting out against injustice or acting out against ecological, you know, forms of devastation, does it require a concept of good and evil in order to function, in order to inspire us to be, you know, um, on the side of, you know, what we consider to be good, for lack of a better term? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope not, and, and I think not. Uh, I mean, if you go back to Buddhist teachings, the Buddha doesn't talk in terms of good and evil. It's uh, wholesome, unwholesome, mm -hmm. or sometimes skillful and unskillful, right? I see. So, I mean, for Buddhism, the fundamental duality isn't the good versus evil that you find in the Abrahamic traditions, but much more delusion versus wisdom, you know? Right. So, uh, and again, that would bring us back to this other type of duality, that the delusion would be seeing dualities and, and also seeing sense of separation and our tribe against their tribe, whereas the more skillful or the more wholesome would be to realize the the, the interdependence and the non-separation between them. I see. Okay, so then the second type of duality is the non-plurality of the world. Right. Okay, well, Can we talk a little about that? <laughs> well, this, this gets into some um, pretty subtle kind of Buddhist, Buddhist metaphysics, mm -hmm. uh, because, I mean, that kind of non-plurality, you find that in Mahayana Buddhism, you don't really find it very much in the Pali Canon or in, say, Theravada in, in, in early Buddhism. And this is where I think that Buddhism here can be fruitfully compared, as I try to do in the book, with the kind of thing that Vedanta, especially Advaita Vedanta, is, yeah. is talking about. You know, for, for, for Advaita, uh, I mean, everything is ultimately Brahman, you know, sort of one consciousness, and insofar as we experience the world as a collection of separate things, that's we're, 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 we're deluded. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how language can be understood to play a role there because learning to speak is learning to see the world as, as, as a collection of sort of utensils, as Heidegger might say, collection of utensils that, that can be used in various ways to satisfy our, our desires. So, the the point of this non-duality is is to say that through some kind of practice through some kind of meditation we can sort of temporarily let go of this labeling and discriminating process and sort of experience the world as some sort of mm, how to say it um i mean in buddhism kind of, something that can't be described something that can't be objectified sometimes called emptiness, but that sort of manifesting or taking form as all the things that we experience, including ourselves. Right. How much that helps, I don't know. <laughs> so are the, the third one, and of course these all sort of proceed from each other, the non-difference of subject and object. Right, right. And, and that's the, uh, as I said before, that, that's the main one that... Right that the book is addressing. And what one thing I found especially interesting here was the kind of, hmm, how to say it, the, the mirror image between what Buddhism is saying and what Advaita Vedanta is saying. You know, that, for example, 
when it comes to the self, Buddhism famously says that there's no self. Right. And Brahman is literally, the, the claim of Brahman and Dvaita is that everything is the self. And what's fascinating about that is they really, I mean, as Wittgenstein put it, right? Um, actually, I'm not quite sure how he expressed it. But the realization that whether or not you shrink to nothing or expand to incorporate everything, it amounts to the same thing, that you've managed to overcome this duality of inside and outside of self and, of self and other. So the, the claim here is that one of the essential aspects of the kind of awakening that Buddhism, for example, is talking about is, is one where, in Buddhist terms, the sense of self sort of lets go, forgets itself, as Dogen would say. We, we forget ourselves, we let go of ourselves, and in the process, we let go of this sense that there's a me inside, behind the eyes, inside the ears, that's looking out at the world. Rather, there's much more of a sense that the realization that, that I'm a sort of impermanent manifestation of something that's also taking form in all the other people and all the other things in the world, but that not separate from that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is actually um, uh, something I wanted to ask you about because I think that that's one of the most compelling parts of the book is when you um, describe the ways in which the self or the Atman of Advaita Vedanta versus the Anatman uh, of Mahayana Buddhism are essentially referring to the same experience. And, um, and so, you know, because there is often a kind of philosophical battle between these two sides, no, it's the self, no, it's the not self. I'm just curious if you have any insights into the historical reasons for why this difference. I mean, I understand that, that sort of one side focuses on the subject, one side focuses on the object, and then, you know, transmutes that into the the mystical experience if you will but but why these two um why these two different traditions why not why don't they ultimately if they are ultimately pointing to the same experience why don't they end up um you know talking about it in similar ways yeah i mean well i think it has a lot to do with the way that language works mm -hmm. that that it tends to reinforce this this sense of separation um, yeah what I find is quite striking is, is that basically these two systems tended to develop at the same time, right? Vedanta and uh, especially, as we now say, the Advaita, Vedanta and, and, and the Buddhism. So it's, it's not as though, as, as people often think, that Buddhism was a kind of heretical offshoot of Vedanta. They were actually springing up more or less more or less parallel to each other hmm. um but but why it is that the one i mean if you have the duality there's two ways to go and I'm, i guess i'm not surprised that both of those are going to be explored i mean one thing i notice is 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 a sense of preoccupation with boundaries on both sides it's interesting that uh, you know uh, Advaita Vedantins are really very concerned to distinguish themselves from Buddhists and vice versa. But once you actually look at what they seem to be pointing at, uh, if you can sort of get beyond some of the metaphysical structuring, uh, it, it really does seem to be very similar. And, and I think we, we tend to miss that because we get caught up in the 
conceptualization precisely what the spiritual path is supposed to help us let go of, you know? Exactly, yeah. Like when we're meditating. That's not a very good answer to your question. I guess the real answer is I, I don't know, but I guess I'm not surprised that both of those would have been explored. Yeah. No, I think that's a great answer. So the next one's a fun one. The non-duality <laughs> of duality and non-duality. My favorite one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, hmm. so through, for example, the, the Buddhist path, for example, Zen, a lot of meditation and so forth. As I said a minute ago, you know, we can let go of ourselves and uh, forget ourselves and have this experience of, of non-separation. But at the same time, that's not to deny the other side of it as well. I mean, one doesn't live in that world. It's like, right. or one doesn't live only in that world, right? It's like, I can feel that I'm part of everything, that I'm manifesting through everything, that I am myself a manifestation of everything. But nonetheless, there comes a point where, you know, da David Loy has to get a driver's license and, uh, and I, I, I need a bank account and, you know, David is separate from Jacob. So that, that side of things is not completely denied, nor is it the point. I mean, and, and I think this is an important one that sometimes people think the point of Buddhism is to simply realize the non-dual and simply dwell there. Yeah. But the way that I would put it, what's more important is to be able to live in both worlds, to be comfortable in both worlds, to see them as two sides of the same coin and be able to move back and forth from one to the other and, and ultimately, you know, sort of in, integrate them. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the first chapter of the Tao Te Ching, but I think that's basically what's going on there. It's a very paradoxical, very strange uh, chapter to figure out, but basically lines one, three, five, and seven are talking about the non-dual way of experiencing, which is the Tao in Chinese terms. And then two, four, six, eight, they're talking about the, what we might call the phenomenal world, the, uh, you know, the world as we normally experience it. And it's quite fascinating the way that that chapter also understands the relationship between the two because when we have desires when we have intentions when we conceptualize then of course we're living in in the dualistic or or the phenomenal world but when we're able to let go of that then we have a glimpse or a taste of this more non-dual dimension yeah i think the doubt it sorry go ahead no, does that make any sense I... yes totally i actually i love that you mentioned the Tao Te ching because i think the Tao Te ching for me reflects the non-dual more than more argumentative texts because it's sort of paradoxical in nature. And when you start to talk about the non-dual in dualistic terms, there's something paradoxical about that. And I just feel like the spirit of the text seems to, you know, reflect or mirror the non-dual, you know, as much as that's possible, um, more than, you know, traditional kind of philosophical arguments about what the non-dual is. I would agree with that. I mean, and I think it's a very poetic text uh, somebody else who comes to mind there too is Dogen, yeah, uh, Japanese. But it's interesting, East Asia, be, because I think it, it had some of its own non-dual traditions that that resonated very nicely. So, so when when Mahayana Buddhism came to China, for example, and then spread to Korea, Japan, and so forth, uh, it, there was 
as it were, a kind of context. And really, Chan or Zen was the result of sort of the interaction between Mahayana and Chan, uh, Mahayana and Taoism. In fact, I think it's sometimes said that uh, if, if Mahayana Buddhism is the father of Zen, then Taoism uh, is the mother. And, and yeah. I think that's really true. Yeah. So um, now I wanted to ask about the, you know, oh, well, actually, let's get to our fifth one first. Sorry, I don't want to leave everybody hanging. <laughs> so the last, the fifth one is maybe the one that, you know, most people uh, think about the non-dual experience or one of the ways they think about it, which is the possibility of mystical unity between God and man. So, um, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory, but do you want to say a few words about that? <laughs> um, well, that question raises, you know, one of the really inter interesting issues is how do we understand the relationship between the kind of ultimate spiritual reality for the Abrahamic religions that have been so important in the evolution of the West, right? Uh, yeah. Western civilization, thinking of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, where for them the ultimate is God. Yeah. That is to say, a, a personal absolute. And then if you compare that to the, what I call the non-dualist traditions of Vedanta, Taoism, and, and Buddhism, which seem to be talking about something, something much more impersonal. I mean, it's, it's, I mean one, one striking thing is um, that f for some mystics in particular, I'm thinking especially of somebody like Meister Eckhart, yeah. or the anonymous author of, of The Cloud of Unknowing, there's very much the sense that when you, well, first of all, not only are there so many similarities in terms of the practice, it, it, which is very suggestive that maybe the result is maybe not that different. Maybe it's simply a different way of talking. Uh, but, but one thing very clear in somebody like Eckhart, uh, he distinguishes between Deus and Deitas, or God and the Godhead, and the idea that ultimately to let go of ourselves and completely become one with God is to transcend God, is to realize what he calls the Godhead. And he often um, seems to describe it in ways that resonate with the way that Buddhism would talk about emptiness, for example. Mm -hmm. it, it's very interesting. My, uh, my main teacher in Kamakura, Japan, where I lived for about 20 years, uh, Yamada Cohen, he was very well known for being open to Christians. He had a lot of Christian students, mostly from Europe and the Philippines, who were there because they wanted to revive the contempl contemplative tradition within their own uh, faith, faith traditions. And it was very interesting the way that some of those people understood uh, their experience in more theistic terms, that they thought that what we call emptiness is maybe not so different from, from what uh, some of the traditions have called God. Now, this is a big issue. It's on both sides. It's very theologically subtle, but uh, um, for the moment, yeah. I guess that's all I can say. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, you know, it's great to, to mention that. And I think it is, it's sort of, you know, even within the Eastern traditions, obviously you have, you know, the Vaishnavas who, put the personality of God on the top and then, you know, the, the Vedantins that put the impersonality of God on the top. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> it's about the experience, not the concept, I suppose. And also Buddhism, Pure Land, you know, is, has, I mean, one thing I do talk about in the non-duality book is um, the, the, the difference between a path that emphasizes contemplation or meditation or letting go, which seems tied to some sort of 
impersonal experience right. versus the more devotional path. You know, it's like if it's going to be devotional, if it's going to have kind of purifying the emotions, emphasizing love, where love seems to require seems to require that which is loved. Yeah, so I, I can get a sense of how somebody following that path would might uh, understand that which is loved as something like a god. Yeah, it seems to. Uh, to, to me, the difference seems to come really come down to kind of the the type of personality following the path. You know, some people are drawn to that devotional, and some people are drawn to the the impersonal in in one way or another. So the um, uh, you mentioned uh, in your book, there's this uh, great chapter about you know causality, and you know I'm not going to try to. <laughs> rearticulate <laughs> the <you>. argument <laughs> um, and maybe and you know maybe that'd be even be challenging for you at this point but you know basically you come down to the this uh, the the essence of the argument is that causality itself is also shunya or empty hmm. and so my question when i was reading that then is you know then what is karma um you know from the perspective of um, you know causality being it empty itself because i i, I guess you know, karma obviously is fraught with disagreement. It's about what it means, and it's a very con controversial topic. Um, you know, when it's especially when it's reduced to seemingly victim blaming, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that it's like it sometimes is. But um, so I'm curious, just because you've done so much, you know, work thinking about this, I'd love to hear sort of what karma is from your perspective based on that insight. Right. Well, it's uh, and it's also important from the perspective of social social justice, right? Yeah, I once heard a, a Tibetan teacher say, "Oh, what terrible karma all those Jews must have had." And right, I mean, that's just—I mean, that's just really unacceptable. And also, the caste system in India, of course, is is based on a kind of karmic karmic system. You know, this is one of those issues where it's hard to know how literally to take the original teachings. And of course, there's always there's always some difficulty. I mean, in in the Pali Canon, as in other old old spiritual traditions, you know, it, it's hard to know what might have been added later, what's been left out, what other things are going on. But I, but I think for us today, or at least for me personally, I should say, I think it's important to put questions of sort of cosmological karma, the kind of karma that might cause rebirth, and rebirth itself to kind of put those on a shelf. You know, not, not denying them, not denying that possibility, but simply saying, I don't know, which I don't. Personally, I don't have any memory of my own past lifetimes, if any. But what's interesting about karma is I think there's a kind of naturalistic understanding that's very powerful and that can explain a lot of it. Um, you know, emphasizing that at the time of the Buddha, most people believed in something like karma, but they tended to understand it in kind of a mechanical way. If you sacrifice in the right way, you'll get what you sacrifice for. And what the Buddha emphasized, and this was a really important part of his sort of spiritual revolution, was uh, motivation, intention. You know, it's not just what we do, but it's the motivation behind it. And I think what he's really pointing to is, is, is something very important that it's off that's often lost because even the word karma literally means action it doesn't mean the result or the fruit of action which is the way that we're often you know talking about it, it yeah. it's really basically what i think it's saying is, is is something like this that um there's a 
simple, if not necessarily easy way to transform how it is that we actually experience each other, how we experience the world, how other people experience and respond to me. And the fundamental issue there is transforming our motivations. You know, mm -hmm. karma emphasizes you sort of, because of what happens, you're going to sort of experience the world, the world's going to treat you in a different way. I think we can get a handle on that just in terms of our own motivations, right? Yeah. If we're, if we're motivated by what Buddhism calls the three poisons, greed, ill will, delusion, then we're going to experience the world and ourselves very differently than if we're motivated by the opposites, generosity, loving kindness, uh, yeah. the wisdom that recognizes and embodies our non-separation, right? right? I mean, a, a pickpocket's going to look in a room of people, he's going to see people's pockets, right? I mean, a Buddha is going to see the Buddha nature of, of everybody, if you want to kind of simplistic. So, I mean, I think what, what karma is, is, is pointing to is not something that has to be understood in a kind of a supernatural way. Not that I mean to deny that possibility, but rather simply that how important it is transforming our motivations. And then what, what was it? Um, um, in other words, we're, we're punished not for our sins, but by them. Hmm. We become the kind of person who does that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the other side of that is that great last line in Swedenborg, uh, Spinoza's ethics, you know, yes, the, I love Spinoza's the, last, ethics, yes. the last verse or the last proposition part Remind five. Me. Right. Um, uh, happiness is not the reward for virtue. Happiness is virtue itself. Mm. And I think that's exactly right. A person who is motivated in a certain kind of way is going to be relating to people in a certain kind of way. And of course, it doesn't always mean that that's going to come back to us. But for the most part, we're, we're going to dwell in a certain kind of world. And I think that's... Uh, we were talking, or I think you mentioned a bit earlier, about the idea of uh, deconstruction. The deconstruction is sort of what happens when we're meditating, this sense of, this constructed sense of self um, uh, composed of mostly habitual ways of thinking and feeling and acting and reacting and so forth. We're in, in the meditation, we're sort of letting them go. We're not, we're not acting, we're not, we're not uh, reinforcing that, 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 that cluster as it were. Um, but the reconstruction is in daily life transforming our motivations. So, yeah. and, and if you think about it, maybe the most important aspects of the sense of self that have the greatest impact and how we actually relate to other people are our motivations and, and the way those are act, the way that those are expressed in our intentions. So, yeah. I mean, a Buddhism really emphasizes that a great deal. And I think they're really onto something. Yeah. Absolutely. People can actually live in different worlds or experience the world very differently according to your fundamental motivations. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit now and talk about um, your uh, work on lack and, you know, the the book you wrote on the approach to the Western historic, you know, history, Western history from a lack perspective. Um, so first of all, what is lack? And, um, <laughs> and, you know, what is, um, how do we, what do we gain by interpreting history f of the West from a lack perspective? Okay, two big questions, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to start off with following up with what we we're just saying about 
the the delusion of separation, the delusion yeah. of inside separate from outside, uh, the delusion that the self is separate from the external world. Um, if that is a delusion, or in contemporary terms, if if that's a psychological and, and social construct, then I think this has some really important implications for how we understand what Buddhism calls dukkha, right? Dukkha is the word usually translated into English as suffering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what the Buddha emphasizes, right? Uh, but there's different types of dukkha. Um, there's the dukkha of physical and mental pain. There's the dukkha of impermanence, the fact that everything pass, you know, everything passes away not only our friends and family, but ourselves, you know. But I think there's also a very deep and maybe the most problematical dukkha of all is, is connected with this delusion of separation. Because what that really means, if, if the sense of self is a construct, something that, you know, is kind of laboriously constructed in the first few years as babies learn their language and so forth. Uh, if it's a construct, then th that means there's nothing real there there's nothing substantial there's nothing ontological right and yet we feel that there's such a it's like we're we're socialized to think that there is right mm -hmm. david must correspond to something just the way that um the word cup corresponds to to this right and and and, and so what i think that really points to is is the fact that the sense of self is inherently insecure inherently uncomfortable it's uh, it's insecure because there's nothing there that could be secured. Yeah. And uh, I think the way that we normally experience that insecurity is as a sense of lack, as as the sense that there's something wrong with me, there's something missing, there's something that's not quite right, or uh, very common. I, I'm not good enough, right? Mm -hmm. Low self-esteem, that, that sort of thing. In other words, I think that this constructed sense of self is shadowed or even haunted, we could say, by a sense of lack, which, however, we, we have. And I think it's one of the great secrets of life because it's, uh, we think it's our own problem. We don't realize everyone else has the sense of lack, too. It's interesting when I go around and I talk about this, and everyone nods, just like you're nodding, because we all have the sense of lack, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, really, it really connects. Um, uh, but how do we understand it? Well, then I think social conditioning kicks in, and what it usually means is there's something out here. You know, I mean, a 1,000 years ago in medieval Europe, you had a Catholic church that would explain it, right? You've sinned. Yeah. You also inherit the original sin of Adam and Eve and so forth. But if you do what we say, after you die, you'll go to heaven and your sense of lack. Okay, now a lot of us don't accept that way of understanding anymore, but we still have a sense of lack. And I think that what happens is we tend to um, understand at a lack of something out here. In our culture, America, growing up 21st century America, well, what? We don't have enough money, right? Yeah. And it doesn't matter how much you've got, it's not enough because that way of understanding our sense of lack is just a symptom. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter. It's like you can never get enough money to fill up the sense of lack when that's not really what the fundamental problem is. Same thing with fame or reputation or romantic love looking for that perfect person that's gonna 
complete us. Um, I mean, these are, I think, these are what I sometimes call lack projects, mm. which are, they're all tragic because if they are how you are trying to make yourself feel, fill up the sense of lack or feel more real, that they can never be successful. They can never, you know, give you enough of, of, of what you're looking for. Um, and, and yet I think that's where many people are stuck. I think many, many people, you know, they exhaust their whole lives trying to, in, in one of these sort of sublimated and objectified ways, trying to get enough money or something to that so that they feel more real. And of course, drug addiction, I think different types of addictive behavior would be other important examples there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one interesting thing about this, of course, is that it also helps connect us with society. You were already referring to history, but for example, um, if you look at consumerism, I mean, it's, sense of lack isn't just an individual problem, is it? It's, it's something that uh, our economic system feeds on. It drives the whole machine, yeah. Exactly. It, it, with advertising to capture our attention and to persuade us that it's the next thing we buy, it's going to make us happy, which it may for a few seconds or a few minutes or depending on the purchase, a few days, you know. But yeah. the point is none of that can can really work, and yet we've – ended up creating an economic system that's dependent on that because if capitalism doesn't grow, it tends to collapse. So it, one of the interesting things for me is the way this understanding of lack sort of connects with social and political situations as well. Yeah. So, you know, then I guess the, the question is, what is the, what do we gain by looking at, you know, the history of the West from a lack perspective? Is it a purely therapeutic one where we sort of recognize the pervasiveness and, and that we're not alone in this experience of lack? Um, you know, or is there a kind of more optimistic uh, uh, thing to be found? Because, you know, someone could read it and say, oh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a pessimistic, you know, view. I mean, realistic, but also pessimistic that, you know, we all, we're, that lack is intrinsic to our our, our very self. Um, so I guess, yeah. So I think I've asked two questions there, but um, <laughs> what do we gain? <laughs> well, I mean, we've talked about the problem um, when we don't understand the source of the sense of lack, right? Right. But, but remember, the, the, the sense of lack is the other side, as it were, of the sense of separate self. And this is where something like Buddhism comes in. It doesn't have to be Buddhism, but that's a good example of the you know spiritual contemplative path right so yeah. i mean i think something like meditation can insofar as it can help us forget let go see through the sense of separation because sense of lack is is the other side of the sense of separation the the ego the ego i'm not saying that very well am i <laughs> but but since the um if, if sense of lack is the other side of sense of self, and if the practice, the meditation practice, is what helps us let go of the sense of self, then it also helps to let go of sense of lack as well. And, right. and I mean, that, that, that's what I find fascinating about. Now, now, one can still ask the question, does something like awakening, do we want to absolutize it in the sense that genuine awakening, deepest awakening, is all sense of lack disappears? Or do we understand awakening as something that's never, never fully complete, but that it gives us more and more spaciousness. There's more and more 
awareness of our sense of lack in a way that enables us not to identify with it in the same way. So, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, uh, I think most of us, maybe all of us still have some sense of lack, but there's very different ways of uh, understanding and, and relating to it. And it's obviously a lot more bothersome for some people than others. I, I can, I guess I'm thinking of a rather notorious example of, uh, you know, recently, I'm thinking of a man who's very, very wealthy and very, very powerful, maybe the most powerful person in the world. And yet he, he obviously is not very happy. He's obviously somebody who has a very strong sense of lack that his fame and power and um, money have not been able to really help him with. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things we've already talked a little bit about, obviously, capitalism, money uh, as a as something that is obviously feeding off of this lack. But I thought it was really interesting the way you describe money in the book, which you describe it as sort of the the placeholder or the stand-in for the sacred in our culture, which I love because it kind of dovetails nicely with something that I often talk about, which is this this idea that the secular has never really been secular. It's just that, you know, our conception of the divine, the function of the divine has shifted. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, uh, about the money as kind of the sacred placeholder? I know you've said a little bit about it already, but just in terms of the, the, the kind of divine or the secular. Well, one way to say it is that the sacred is whatever can fill up our sense of lack. Mm. Right. Yeah. So traditionally, I mean, I, I, I do wonder, uh, thinking, thinking historically, um, you know, humanity, the human species, we're the only ones that have religion or, or seem to need it. And I'm wondering, you know, f- from what I've said, sense of lack seems to be a function of our sort of self-consciousness, a certain kind of self-consciousness. And can we understand religion as sort of our collective social way of trying to cope with the sense of lack, right? Whether we have gods or, you know, we we have gods that we worship or rituals, sacrifices and so forth, whereby we're trying to address it. And insofar as in our quote unquote secular world, we no longer believe in that, we're going to have to sacralize something else in order to in order to fill up our 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 sense of lack. Yeah. You reminded me of um I guess it's Wendell Berry, the poet, in, in one of his great poems called How to Be a Poet, he says something like, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Mm. So a sense, a sense of the sacrality of, of, of the world, I mean, I think that that's part of what we open up to when we're able to let go of of the things that we try to cling to to fill up our sense of lack. We can get a sense of not only a kind of mysteriousness of the world, but a kind of sacrality as as well, which yeah. which we've lost. Given that we again, it goes back to this parallel of our collective sense of separation. That for us, we because we do feel separate from the rest of the earth, and I think it's largely a um, a legacy not only of Judeo-Christian, but Greek, um, going back to the Greeks, their distinction between, you know, 
fusus and nomos between mm -hmm. the natural world and you know human convention because of this sense of of separation then i think we're doing the same thing collectively we're i mean i think our collective lack project is this attempt to uh, secure ourselves economically and technologically kind of transform treating the whole earth as sort of a pool of resources for us to use and abuse in any way that we want yeah. because all meaning is with us and the the earth is just kind of a backdrop that has no value uh no meaning in and of itself and the ecological crisis can be understood as kind of the consequence of that way of thinking yeah because insofar as we feel separate we well, insofar as we're not really separate, if we abuse and damage the earth, we're abusing and damaging ourselves, such as yeah. we're experiencing now. I love the, what you said a little, uh, a little bit ago, where you were essentially describing sacrality as something that arises when you stop clinging to you know, specific things that might fill your lack, which to me seems to imply that you, know, you have to release certain, like, idols that stand in for your sense of the sacred in order to actually find the sacred it's interesting well one interesting thing that happened by the way it, this is worth mentioning um you know there's an interesting difference between indigenous traditions especially the ones that don't have scripts mm -hmm. and you know what happened when we got alphabetic script especially right because it's it's if you think about the Torah, the Bible, the Quran, basically with script sort of language takes on a life of its own and then it becomes sacralized insofar as people think it's the word of God. Yeah. But the irony is that in sacralizing that in finding it in the book, it has the effect of tending to desacralize everything else. Yeah. So, I mean, one interesting thing here in Buddhism, although Buddhist texts are sometimes treated as sacred, I mean, they're not. They're not revealed. It's just guidebooks, like maps, roadmaps to help us transform ourselves. But mm. insofar as we're caught up religiously with these sacred texts, it, it does tend to uh, overshadow this other sacrality that we're pointing to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, when, you were, when you were saying that about the text and idolizing the text, it sort of reminds me of some uh you know descriptions of the Ve the history of the vedas as when they were written down they were sort of crudified in a certain kind of way and that like originally the kind of living word was was primary and you even see that in you know like in the the tantric shaivite tradition where you know the the mantras which were the word you know the vibratory frequency of the absolute were where they couldn't be written down and you wouldn't find them in the text because they had to be initiatory you know they had to be transmitted in the context of initiation and and so you know the text it's like it's reflecting what you're saying i think this this idea that you know something gets it's too dense for what it's meant to symbolize when it gets you know put in the form of a text and that was very important historically for buddhism you know buddhism was we believe an oral tradition for 300 plus years right thus have i heard that's how the suttas begin and then right around the time it begins to be written down yeah. mahayana develops and then the whole sensorium changes there's there's much more visual uh and and 
if you look at some of the Mahayana, uh, you know, sutras, very elaborate uh, visual imagery. Uh, so there, there, there's a kind of change in sensorium there, there as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're getting towards the end of our uh, conversation, which has been totally uh, fascinating. And, but I wanted to end on this question. Actually, it came earlier in my questions here, but I think it's a great one to end on um, because I think it sort of wraps up nicely what we've been talking about, which is, um, well, it's based on a, a, a short video that I saw on your website um, and that you had a presentation you did on the internal and external um, uh, commitments, right? The importance of internal and external practices to manifest sustainable social change. And, you know, this, this insight, I think, is super important, obviously, because there's on the one hand, we have you know the Western perspective of, of social justice, which tends to not be accompanied by contemplative practice, and then on the other side, you know, there's the opposite. So you say that we they both need each other. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, going back to what we said earlier about the emphasis on in the Abrahamic traditions on good versus evil. I mean, in a yeah. way, I think that's kind of the operative duality, isn't it? I mean, if we're created by God, he, he also wants us to live in a certain kind of way. And so that's where good versus evil comes in, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. And, and then we, but we talk somewhat about the kind of issues there, the problems with that. But nonetheless, the other side of this preoccupation with good versus evil has been social justice. Mm -hmm. You know, think of the prophets. Um, the, the Hebrew prophets and uh, you know, what they were saying to the kings um, that they can't just do what they want, that in a way God expects them to act in a certain kind of way. They shouldn't be oppressing the orphans and the widows and the poor and so forth, that they, they, they have the same responsibility to act justly. And, and, and I think that uh, has led to our concern for social justice and, and also bringing in the Greek idea that we can transform our society if we don't like the way it's structured, putting those yeah. together has created the modern world. And mm -hmm. although a lot of us feel some discomfort that, uh, you know, there's all kinds of problems, nonetheless, we also need to realize just how much has been achieved in a mill blink of history in terms of a couple hundred years, uh, you know, overthrowing kings, reformation, religious freedom, uh, anti-slavery, civil rights, women's rights, uh, gay rights, etc., etc. I mean, a, a lot has been achieved, I think. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, in the Buddhist tradition, there's not that concern for social justice. As we said, the primary concern is um, not good, good versus evil, but delusion versus wisdom. But it's still, it all comes back to dukkha. And when I go back and look at the earliest teachings, it seems to me that the Buddha... Uh, was much more socially progressive than the institution that developed after he died. I mean, if you look at his attitude toward women, he started, you know, in his time, the situation of women in India was really bad. They were kind of chattel, but he started a woman sangha and he emphasized, you know, so that women can awaken too. And he understood the relationship between husband and wife. They have responsibilities to each other and, and, and so forth. Uh, and likewise, the Buddha's attitude toward caste, the way that when you entered the Sangha, you lost all caste. Um, you weren't even supposed to talk about caste. Um, you know, really important stuff because they're, they're mendicants. 
the these monks that means they have to go begging for their food every morning and you can't discriminate caste the most important thing almost is who prepares your food who do you eat with and if you're it doesn't matter if you're a brahmin you enter the sangha you're going to go to an untouchable and beg for food and so you know there, there was a real kind of revolutionary side there that i think that buddhism tended to lose because in order to survive and thrive in a non-democratic situation, you had to come to some kind of compromise or understanding with kings. Mm. And unfortunately, I think what happened was the karma teaching tended to be used to sort of rationalize the power of kings, even if they were nasty, even if they were doing all kinds of things that caused a lot of dukkha. Nonetheless, yes. if they were born as princes, they must have really good karma from their past lifetimes and we should have loved them and so forth and so on. Yeah. So I think that's the way... It was a kind of radical beginning that somehow got lost and it stayed lost. And the good side of that is because Buddhism emphasized personal transformation, personal dukkha. I mean, it, it developed this wonderful collection of contemplative practices, by far the greatest in the world. I, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, but it was very much on the individual level. In the now, in the West, well, in the modern era, we've lost the contemplative you know, with, with the Reformation, but we have the social justice. So it really seems to me that there, there are these two, the, these two sides that, that need each other yeah. if, if we're going to be as uh, successful. I guess I would call these two projects, two kind of projects. And I, and I think we need both of them. It, it, it's like talking about two sides of freedom. Mm. You know, we need the kind of freedom that the West has developed, democracy and so forth. But we also need the kind of freedom that Buddhism and other spiritual traditions talk about. Freedom from our own ways of thinking, from our own concepts, from our own delusions, from our own sense of separate self. I think both of these freedoms, we, we really need them today. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. So do you have any closing thoughts, David, that you'd like to share based on anything that we talked about? Uh, well, maybe I should just mention that uh, my, my recent project is, um, well, in, in addition to that Ecodharma book you mentioned, um, yes. we just started this new Ecodharma Center just like a year and a half ago, not too far away from Boulder here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, I think this is a really Im important situation. Look, ecologically, we're in very dangerous situation as yeah. as i think you know and as most listeners will know and we really need all the help we can get and uh so for me a real growing tip not only for buddhism but all religious traditions is what do they have to say what do they have to offer that can help us understand and respond to our worsening ecological situation and that's certainly one of the main focuses for our center and uh so i would invite people to uh reflect on that and uh They'll maybe come visit us sometime. Yeah. So, how can people uh, check out the the center? Do you have? Is there a website? Well, uh, they can get there through my website, davidloy.org. But okay. also, they can go just directly uh, Rocky Mountain Eco Dharma Retreat Center. org. And I know that's a mouthful, so it's R R M E R C. dot org will also get you there. Oh, nice. We have a Facebook uh, page as well. 
Excellent. Um, I'll put that in the show notes for sure. Do you have sort of, is it, can you, can sort of anyone show up or is it sort of you have ongoing different programs that like weekly programs or stuff like that? Good point. You better not just show up because actually uh, <laughs> we're, we're a fairly small place. What, what we basically do is uh, we, we're sort of an umbrella and then different groups can come and um, rent the facility very cheaply. That's another big concern of ours. So, uh, please don't show up because <laughs> you may not be able to get in, but check out the courses and the retreats that are being offered. And if you're interested in some of those, then uh, please contact the appropriate people. Excellent. Yeah. We don't want, you know, random pilgrims showing up on your doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a little, it, it could be problematical, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, David, on that note of, you know, sharing projects, is there anything else, any workshops or, um, any programs that are coming up that you want to share um, with the listeners? Well, may, maybe they should look at my website. Mo most of what I'm doing uh, is on this. There, there's a page uh, about schedule, and okay. I try to keep that updated. There, I am going to be doing. I am going to be co-teaching a two-week Ecodharma retreat next August. Okay. Uh, sorry, July and August. So uh, that's one possibility. But if people want to follow up, they can. Uh, they can do that. And there's also an email address on the website. So if people have more specific questions, I'll, I'll see what I can do. I can reach out. All right, David. Well, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Jacob. I've really enjoyed it too. Absolutely.